Uh, our, our guest is uh, Ambassador Michael Oren, who uh, many of you know, many of you saw here last year. Um, he came to Aspen a few days after he took over uh, as Israel's ambassador in Washington, um, and that was his first interview. He's subsequently done 400 interviews, um, and has presumably uh, learned how to uh, not answer questions, although we're hoping, we're hoping for some... But let me start. Um, I mean, uh, everybody, I don't think I have to introduce him very much. He's, before he became ambassador uh, from Israel to the United States, uh, he was an esteemed historian. Many of you read his books on, on American, uh, the American experience in the Middle East and on his history of the Six-Day War. Uh, he's uh, a, a scholar, uh, and, and he brings to this conversation more than uh, what, a, what, what the usual sort of diplomat brings, which is to say he's been studying this issue, the issue that he's now involved in for, for 30 years, is that fair? 30, 40, 50, 50 since years? Since he was six years old. Well before, well before his bar mitzvah. Um, but let me, let, me, let me start with that bit of, of, of news with you, if I, if I may, um, and, and talk about Iran just for a second, and talk about what uh, the ambassador from the UAE said. Um, he made news by... Um, uh, endorsing a U.S. military strike. I was wondering if you wanted to make news by, by saying that we could live with a nuclear Iran. Shalom. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I've learned. This thing on. It's on. First of all, it's delightful to be back here with Jeffrey, Walter, my wife Sally's joined me this year. Well, she wasn't here last year, and so many friends. Uh, thank you for receiving me so graciously again, and thank you for providing the biblical background uh, to this talk. Um, and talking about Iran, I mean, I've, I've heard about bombing in New Haven, but never in Aspen. Um, no, I don't. Israel cannot live with a, with a, cannot contain Iran. I, and I want to tell you that in, in the year that I've been in this office and in very uh, close and intimate dialogue with the Obama administration on the Iranian issue, I have never once, I stress never once, heard the word containment or heard a suggestion that the United States or anybody else, for that matter, can coexist with a nuclear Iran. Do you support a U.S. military strike on Iran? I support the sanctions regime, which we are taking very seriously. Um, in uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu's first meeting with the president as president, he had met him before president, uh, now just over a year ago uh, in May of 2009, uh, the prime minister signed on to the president's handling of the Iran I uh, issue. And it was a linear progress. It was, it was a linear process which began with engagement. It proceeded from engagement to reassessment, from reassessment to, um, to compromise. That was the Tehran uh, research reactor compromise, which was preferred in conjunction with Israel. We were very much involved in that offer. It was turned down. And along that linear... <laughs> This is going to be excellent. This is really going to be excellent. I think God is working for the UAE. <laughs> but um, That would change a lot in your whole perspective right. of the world, wouldn't it? Really? God is working for the UAE. Um, along that trajectory, there are the sanctions. And 
we have to see whether these sanctions will work. We've had important legislation coming from both houses of, of Congress that have been reconciled, now signed into law by the president. We've had a, an historic uh, fourth sanctions resolution in, this, in the Security Council. The sanctions are going into effect. We pray. <laughs> I was going to say hope. It doesn't quite do it. We pray. Every time you endorse sanctions, that's all I'm saying. All right? Go on. We pray that, um, that these sanctions will prove uh, efficacious, especially if they have a strong energy component. If not, we move along the trajectory. And there are other stages along this trajectory. It doesn't, you, know, you don't move directly from sanctions to some type of military action. But you should know that the oft-repeated uh, policy of the Obama administration and of this government of Israel is that all options remain on the table. Um, let, me, let me step back and talk about this last tumultuous year in, in Israel. Tumultuous in Israel, tumultuous in Aspen. In Aspen, <laughs> tumultuous. It's weird, Charlton Heston is outside with these two tablets. <laughs> I don't know what it means. <laughs> but, but <laughs> I, I didn't eat the hot dog. I swear. I didn't eat the hot dog. I didn't eat the hot dog. It's been a very tumultuous year yes. in American-Israeli relations. Um, there is, I want to make two statements, and you could argue with them both if you want. Um, one is that from the Israeli perspective, there are only two important things from a national security perspective. One is stopping a regional adversary from gaining possession of a nuclear weapon. The other is maintaining excellent relations with the United States of America. Okay, that's number one, stipulated number one. I can almost, I can almost hear you. Yeah, I can hear you. Number two. Right. Now, this is, I don't know if this is going to sound controversial or not, but... Anti-Semites and philo-Semites agree that Jews are supposed to be smart, okay? There's a stereotype out there. Right. Now, from my perspective, and argue this if you want, but the, the, the Israeli government in the last year, in certain instances, has not behaved the way one would assume smart people behave. I'm talking about the, the incident when Joe Biden went to Israel. Joe Biden went to Israel. I'm talking, all right, he can't hear me, but that doesn't matter. You know, the good thing about this is you can't leave. Okay, about... about um... <laughs> I mean, we could... You start doing Israeli folk dancing and you've got no choice. All right, I got He's going to try to answer this question. I told him what the question I'll was. I'll give an answer. Nobody, no people, not the Jewish people, not the, you know, Georgian people, not the Indian people, have a monopoly over either brilliance or over stupidity. That is true. And it's very easy now to sort of gainsay various decisions or lack of decisions made by the Israeli government over the course of the last year. Monday morning quarterbacking. Try translating that into Hebrew. It's very easy to say that we could have maybe reached the decision on the moratorium earlier than we did. Or that we could have made a different decision or different response to the flotilla, and I'm sure you're gonna ask more about the flotilla, and we could have better, better job uh, during the Biden visit of knowing 
when a mid-level bureaucrat in the interior ministry was going to announce the fourth of seven stages in a building project that was going to be undertaken in two years. We could have done a better job. That is true. One thing you learn about being close to decision-making or being a decision-making yourself and that it's almost invariably a matter of choosing between five or six terrible options and searching for the least terrible of all of them. And so, yes, the flotilla had a, a tragic outcome. There was a loss of life. But I could have given you different scenarios and different outcomes where the loss of life would have been much greater. For example, trying to blow the propeller off of that ship, a ship whose uh, integrity in terms of its physical territory we didn't know and if you blow off the propeller, you're liable to sink the entire ship, and 600 people could have drowned. It would have had a different outcome. And then people would have come to you and said, well, why did you blow the propeller off the ship? So you can always say that. This is not to say that we have, again, we do not have anything approaching a monopoly but over brilliance. Well, let me finish this. Having said that, this is also the year that Israel, in marked contradistinction, to the overwhelming majority of states in the world experienced no recession, where our growth rate was largely off the charts. It is also a year in which Israel had the lowest level of terror in 62 years. It is also the year where tourism completely uh, you know, filled up. You can't get a place on a plane to Israel or a place in an Israeli hotel. And those were decisions of intelligence. And the fact of the matter is, and this is a, 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 a demonstrable distinction, uh, statistic, if you live in the state of Israel, you have an appreciably greater chance per capita of publishing a scientific paper, getting a scientific or technological patent, having a successful startup company, or having a Nobel Prize than any other country in the world any other country in the world. Do we have a monopoly over smarts? No. Do we have a better chance of being smart? I think we do. Let me go back to the issue of the flotilla and not the, not the technical aspects of how you could have handled that once you decided to handle it. The question is, Israel has enemies who want to see it destroyed. We recognize that. Israel faces provocations all the time from these sorts of enemies. The, the provocations are meant to provoke. And I think, I've heard from a lot of people who are supportive of Israel, who feel this way, that Israel, more than ever, walks into these sort of traps. That, that the trap is laid, if you study the trap, you understand that it's a trap, and yet, boom, you bluster right in. And that's what I'm talking about. I mean, I, when I, I wrote about this, I used the word, the Yiddish word, or the Hebrew word, seichel which means it's not just smart, but smarts, like being, being clever or canny, figuring out your way around a problem rather than just driving right at the problem. And this is, I come back to this, because you're talking about the decision once the decision was made to stop the boat. If that boat had gone through, it would have spent half a day on Al Jazeera, and then it would have been done. And now you have a situation where the Libyans want to send ships, and Hezbollah wants to send ships, and the Irish want to send ships, and you've had to change your whole policy on Gaza because of this. So you can defend the, 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 the difficulty of the decision-making process, but you have to admit that Israel's in a worse place now than if it had not tried to stop that ship in the first place. Can we have a thunderclap, please? <laughs> One, okay. Take... 
three steps back. Right? Why was there a blockade on Gaza? There was a blockade on Gaza because Gaza had been taken over by Hamas. Hamas, as you know, is not your friendly neighborhood organization. It's a genocidal organization. It calls not only for the destruction of Israel, it calls for the destruction of the Jewish people worldwide. All right? If you're Jewish in the audience, you're on Hamas's hit list. And it, it's not mere rhetoric for Hamas. They fired 10,000 rockets and projectiles in Israel over a three and a half year period and put almost a million Israelis under rocket fire. Now they have tunnels. They have tunnels under the Egyptian border, as many as 1,000 tunnels. And the Egyptians have done a better job of interdicting some of these tunnels, but they keep coming. To get a very large rocket through a narrow tunnel is difficult. It comes through as a drip. There's one way that Hamas could replicate the experience of Hezbollah, which has more than quadrupled the number of rockets in its arsenal since 2006, and that is if the sea lanes to Gaza were open. We have now intercepted three major armed ships from Iran that were not laden but bursting with arms. That would have been game changers had they reached Gaza. So we are not imposing this blockade because we enjoy imposing blockades or because we enjoy incurring the wrath or being accused of a lack of sechel. Right, we are incurring this, 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 this blockade because it is vital to our national security. P.S. It's also vital to Egypt's national security. And P.S.S. It's also vital to the survival of the peace process because if one of those ships get into Gaza, the peace process is dead because the P.A. is dead. That's simple. Palestinian Authority. Palestinian Authority is dead. Now, these are very, very high stakes. So you ask yourself, how then are you going to stop the ships from getting into Gaza? Now, we have in intercepted 19 flotillas, all of them using technical means that were at our disposal, which I, I am not at disposed to reveal to you, but they're technical means. We did it without any incident. We neither incurred nor inflicted any casualties in the course of interdicting these flotillas. In this particular flotilla, there were six ships. On five of the six ships, we used the same technical methods and nothing happened. On one ship, which was the Marvi Marvara, which was too big for our technical means. By the way, the United States also does not have the technical means for stopping a ship of that size and which had 600 people aboard, which created a different dynamic, we had to try a different tactic, which was landing commandos on board armed with paintball guns to disperse the crowd on deck so that we, we, they could achieve, they could take over the actual control deck and steer it into port. By the way, we offered, I personally offered the Turks a deal that if they would come in peacefully, give their cargo to us, then we would transfer that cargo to, to responsible parties in Gaza. They turned us down. They turned us down repeatedly. They turned down even an, a request that they give some of that humanitarian aid to Gilad Shalit, the Israeli soldier who's now been held for four years in violation of all international law without a single visit from the Red Cross. They turned that down. What we did not know was that the people on deck on this one particular boat were not peace activists. They were members of a radical Islamist organization, IHH, which had been banned by the previous Turkish organization, which has connections to Islamic extremist groups in the world, which got on, 60, 70 of these guys got on on a different port than the other PPX activists. They were not checked for weaponry. 
We did not collect intelligence on Turkey because Turkey was a friendly state. We had no idea that these people were on deck. And so, okay, you say it's a lack of sechel, but let's play a horrible game. You wake up tomorrow morning, we'll do a little Kafka thing. You're not a bug, but you're the, pre you're the prime minister of the state of Israel. Rather be Gavalt. a bug. You'd rather be a yeah. bug. <laughs> Gavalt. You have this ship come in. The ship could have toys on it, it could have trombones on it, or it could have rockets on it, or if it breaks through, it creates a precedent where rockets can get through, and a million Israelis will be under rocket fire, and the peace process is dead, and Egypt is endangered as well. What decision do you make, Jeffrey? Well, I probably wouldn't have had so strict a blockade on Gaza in the first place that, that we would have had the opportunity for anti-Israel activists to make martyrs of themselves by sending these, these ships. And as we saw subsequent to this disaster, Israel liberalized the blockade so that all of the stuff that was on those ships... Not from the sea. Not through the sea, but, but it would have come through land, so there would have been no need for the sea. I'm just saying that, I'm just saying that, that Israel wound up liberalizing the blockade under pressure. It could have liberalized it beforehand. I'm just all giving you the alternative, alternative right. scenario. I think you're right. And, and we had started the liberalizing the blockade. We began to realize this. And the blockade was created, was, also had many functions to it. It was about Gilad Shalit. And there's an Israeli public that wants to see that there's some pressure put on Gaza. We wanted to distinguish between Gaza and the West Bank. The West Bank has a growth rate of between 8 and 11%, which is extraordinary given the, the global recession. It has tens of thousands of new jobs created. It has a security force which is trained in conjunction with the United States, which has now taken over from four major Palestinian cities. The Israeli Defense Forces have pulled out of those cities. We're pulling out further. The West Bank is booming. We wanted to show, look, there's a dividend here. If you, if you embark on the path of peace, this is what you get. If you embark on the path of terror, what you get is Gaza. And, um, and it, was, it, was, it was a policy that we, this present government, had inherited from two previous Israeli governments. We didn't originate the government. We didn't, we, didn't, we didn't launch this. We didn't initiate this policy. We had begun to liberalize, liberalize it already because we were realizing that Hamas was getting stronger by bringing things in through the tunnels and that if we opened up the border crossings or we liberalized the crossings, then Hamas you know, would suffer economically by getting less money through the crossings. That's why every time we opened up the crossings, Hamas shelled the crossings. They didn't want the crossings open. They wanted the tunnels open. Let me, let me, um, let me broaden this out a little yeah. bit and talk about um, uh, sort of the, the broader context in which we're in, which it seems, it seems as if Israel is always these days on its back foot in a way. It's always defending itself from a charge. It's always, it's always explaining itself. It's always under investigation. Um, the question is, 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 that, is that caused by Israel's mistakes? Is that caused by a double standard that the world has about Israeli behavior? Or is that caused by some combination of the two? And, and the, the actual question embedded in that is, is, does, is, is Israel running out of time? I mean, this is, people talk about now things that they didn't talk about 10 or 15 years ago, which is, can Israel survive as a Jewish-majority democratic state in this most volatile and explosive region of the world that is in the grips of, uh, uh, of a religious fervor that has no room for, for Jews? I mean, do you have time on your side? Do I have time to answer all of those questions? There's only like three. <laughs> <laughs> Five of those questions. You know, like, you know when, when, when a Jewish question is three questions, a statement, a rhetorical question, and then a <laughs> sigh at the end. 
Jews. I think that was fairly reformed yeah, Jewish. I'm trying actually. to think which one of those go. Where do you go? Just answer the last part. Answer the last part. I think you'll have time. Into the mic. Listen, it always helps to have the historical perspective on these things. The historical perspective is, you know, you look back in Israel in, in May of 1948 when we had uh, 600,000 Jewish citizens, about the half the size of metropolitan Washington, uh, with no, no allies, no economy, basically handguns being invaded by six Arab armies, um, and we prevailed, and we, we you know, created this thriving, rather rambunctious uh, democracy, and uh, we absorbed about 10 times our original number in terms of, of refugees in the first decade, and a flourishing Hebrew culture, and then, you know, 1967, same deal, surrounded by Arab armies, no allies, no economy, um, we prevailed. Um, so I'm used to hearing, you know, as an historian, I'm used to hearing that scenario, oh, Israel's on the verge of destruction and we're running out of time. Um, I have somewhat better, I have somewhat greater faith in, in Israel's ability to persevere even in the face of seemingly insurmountable obstacles. This is in no way meant, however, to diminish the obstacles that we do face. Okay, we face a rapidly uh, nuclearizing Iran. That is a monumental threat. It's a monumental threat on multiple layers, not just because if Iran gets a bomb, they can stick it on one of the many warheads they have that can hit any Israeli city. That's almost the least of the problems. Once Iran gets military nuclear capabilities, they pass it on to Hamas, to Hezbollah. Our borders, like your borders, are not hermetically sealed. Uh, once Iran gets a bomb, then a number of Middle Eastern states are also going to seek military nuclear capabilities. Israel's going to find itself inhabiting a profoundly unstable nuclear neighborhood. Um, that type of monumental threat. Um, we face a monumental threat from terror. Um, we face um, Threats from uh, any number of sources, but in the course of the last year in, in office here, I've encountered an entirely new threat, which also looms uh, exceedingly ominously over a horizon, and that is the, the threat that goes by uh, the initials BDS, Boycott, Divestment, and Sanctions. The attempt not only to deny Israel the right to defend itself, you know, a la the Goldstone Report, but also the, the, the right of Israel to exist as a democratic, Jewish state. And that right as being impugned, uh, not just in international forums, but I find it being impugned uh, in now, uh, you know, sort of uh, mainstream media organs, things that would have been relegated in previous years to the, to the radical fringe, have moved central. And I take the threat very, very seriously. And it's something that, it is a threat that we have to address. Well, we can't ignore it. Stay on this point, but, but narrow it down mm -hmm. just for, for a moment. Uh, I think it's a particular interest to some people in this audience. Is, is Israel in danger of losing the American Jewish community? No. Because we see, we see more and more, especially on the younger side, people saying, you know what, this country behaves in ways that I don't agree with, I can't relate to it, I don't understand it anymore, it's increasingly religious, increasingly intolerant. You see the same stuff that... That, that I do. Um, J Street, the, the APAC alternative or whatever you want to call it, uh, is one manifestation of this, maybe one semi-moderate manifestation of this? I think, I, think, I think the greater danger, I think it's, it's too simplistic to say that Israel is in danger of losing the American Jewish community. I think that the American Jewish community is in danger of losing Judaism and, and, and losing Jewish identity. And I think that um, the American Jewish community is much like the, the Big Bang Theory, it's expanding and contracting at the same time. It's contracting at the periphery where there's a tremendous amount of assimilation, intermarriage, 
uh, and people who have become deracinated Jewishly, moving away from their Jewish roots, and almost perforce, they move away from their connection to Israel. Um, that's not across the board. There are some people who are deeply involved in their Jewish roots who have great criticism of the state of Israel, but it's a, but relatively speaking, a small group. That, that periphery is contracting. The core, however, at the same time is expanding, and that is a core that is, in many ways, modern Orthodox or otherwise deeply engaged with their Jewish identity. And to a very great extent, that expanding core is very much involved in Israel. And I, I'm, you know, at, I'm at, at a loss to say at what point the expanding core can make up for the contraction on the periphery. Um, but we're not in danger of losing the American Jewish community as a whole. This is not to say, and I keep on repeating, this is not to say that we, ha we do not face a challenge in engaging liberal, assimilated Jews and keeping them involved in Israel. And, see, and finding a role for Israel in their lives. And it's no easy challenge. Liberal American Jewry is increasingly secular. It is uh, universalist. It has a problem with nationalism. It sometimes has a problem with armies and militarism. Israel is a nationalist, Jewish, territorial, uh, unabashedly, unabashed about its army state. So right on that level, you have a difficulty in bridging that gap. You know, when we grew up, how many times did we hear the word, the, the term tikkun olam? Not, not too much. Not, I think I heard it once in my senior year. Tell people what it means. Tikkun olam means, it, it's, a, it's a notion, it's actually a, a rather obscure notion from Kabbalah, uh, Jewish mysticism. It talks, it talks about that, that there's, there's a, a, spirit, a spiritual, um, um, the world is spiritually broken. That's what it is. And the Jews have a role to fix the world spiritually. And um, what has become, what was once a, a rather obscure Kabbalistic notion, has become a centerpiece of identity for a large segment of the American Jewish community, particularly parts of the conservative, much of the reform movement, so much so that I'm encountering this term all the time. I think I heard President Obama mention it the other day. Um, it, is, it has moved so much into the mainstream. And it's, what does it mean tikkun olam, as, as a form of identity. It means that the Jews, particularly in this country, have a sense of a universal duty. And it is that sense of duty translates into world Jewish service and, and American Jews not necessarily going to work on a kibbutz, but going to work and building a school in Guatemala in a poor village. And Israel faces a challenge of bridging the gap between its identity as a Jewish state dedicated to Jewish peoplehood, to an American liberal um, identity which sees itself not necessarily dedicated to peoplehood first, but to a role to fixing the world. I think there's a possibility of bridging the gap and seeing that Israel also works for tikkun olam. Israel is the first country that shows up in Haiti with a medical delegation that actually shows up not only with doctors but with medicine and that they're that engaging American Jews and saying, look, you can work for tikkun olam by supporting Israel's efforts to serve the people of Haiti. And, but it's, it's but, a work but in I progress. Would I would argue, not only for the sake of argument, but that's useful, um, I would argue that, yes, American Jews are moving toward a kind of a, a universalism, almost bland universalism, but that it, it, Israel has done some things to actually push 
And I'm talking about mainly the settlement project in the West Bank. Um, people look at the settlements to, um, to the average American understanding of the world. Uh, the, you know, the, 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 the Palestinians are the underdog. In, in the average American understanding of the world, the underdog is almost axiomatically right. Um, American Jews... Except in World out, War II when the Germans were well, the underdogs. Uh, the, <laughs> yes. Ameri- American Jews come out yeah. almost as much of the, from the civil rights movement as African Americans do. Um, and so they refract what they see in the Middle East often through the prism of the American civil rights movement. And what they see on the West Bank, and you know where I come down on this, where you see is people taking land from other people to enact a biblical vision of what they should be, um, to, to, um, to ring uh, Jerusalem in a way that would prevent Jerusalem from ever being, East Jerusalem ever being pre- uh, prepared to be a capital of, of a Palestinian state. And so it's not just, it's not just tikkun olam, it's not just uh, the desire to be universalistic, it's, it's an actual repulsion feeling that some American Jews have toward certain Israeli behaviors. I understand that. <laughs> I understand that, but... I didn't phrase and, and that in the form of a question, all, but... No, it's I, all, I know you didn't. It's a generational issue also. Listen, we grew up in the aftermath or in the, in this, in, in the shadow of the Six-Day War, which, was, which had a profound impact for us. Some people older in the audience may remember the War of, of, of Independence or even the Holocaust in a personal way. Uh, we grew up remembering Entebbe, the, the great uh, airlifts of Ethiopian Jews, the liberation of Soviet Jews, Jewry, one, one, of the, one of the great events in modern history, nearly a million people, a modern exodus, uh, sources of great inspiration. But increasingly, uh, the focus certainly in the media and also on campuses for young American Jews is Israel, the settlements, Israel, the Intifada, Israel in Lebanon, Israel in Gaza. And, you know, these are, this is, this is, this is it's, it's irrefutable, it's ineluctable, you, you have to deal with it. There's no question about it. And I could explain to an audience that Israel has tried, and the Zionist movement has tried repeatedly since the 1930s to offer a two-state solution to the Palestinians, and you know this, and that the Palestinians literally hold the world's record for people that have been offered a state and have turned it down, usually with violence, including in the last last 10 years, twice they've been offered the state and have turned it down uh, with violence. So... And we're trying again now to offer them a state, and they won't come to the negotiating table with me. Yes, there are settlements. Yes, settlements are a complex issue. I could make a state, I could make an argument among young American Jews. Tell me, do you think that Native Americans have a right to live on their tribal lands? But do Jews have a right to live on their tribal lands? These are our tribal lands. Haifa is not in the Bible. Tel Aviv is in the Bible, but it's been in Babylonia. Jericho's in the Bible, Bethlehem's in the Bible. These are our tribal lands. We don't have any other. We realize, we recognize that there's another people who views this as their tribal lands, and therefore we have to share it with it. But we share it with a tremendous amount of, sta- of pain. And that for a Jewish state constituted as a Jewish state to tell a Jew that they cannot live in their homeland is very difficult. Very difficult. We do it, we're going to do it with pain. And let me tell you, I believe, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a great optimist. I wouldn't be in this job if I weren't an optimist. I believe that we have an historic opportunity now to reach peace with the Palestinian leadership. I think we have the right Israeli government. I think we have the right Palestinian leadership. I think we have the right American leadership. I think we have the right regional context where Arab states, and I don't have to go too deeply into this, feel that there's another state in the region who poses a far greater threat to them than Israel does. I think we have an historic opportunity right now. But reaching the agreement will not be anywhere as challenging as implementing it will be.
And once we reach the agreement, that's when our work will begin because there will be a long list of people who will try to prevent that, that, that implementation on all sides. And the reason is because every so many people view this land as their God-given patrimony. Let me uh, do one more uh, question, and then we're going to have questions from the audience. There's going to be mics that are going around. Um, but you, you brought up the American president, and um, I, I want you to talk a little bit about the meetings this week. Um, but I, I also want you to go into a little bit the relationship between you know, what seems to be sometimes the Lucy and Ricky of international relations, Bibi Netanyahu and Barack Obama. <laughs> uh, I, I mean, it's, 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 uh, it's a very emotional and fraught relationship, and I want you to analyze that. Who's the Lucy? I'm not telling. <laughs> That's for you to figure out. Listen, there was, there's, again, you can't, we gotta, we, we gotta take, we gotta deduct for the thunder. Um, Sturm and Drang. Um, listen, obviously, there were challenges in this relationship. There is a, uh, a, a new government in the United States of America that came in with sort of a center-center-left worldview. Um, the president had been very expressed before his election about how he would uh, pursue peace in the Middle East, how he viewed settlements, how he viewed the Jerusalem issue, just as he, how he viewed the Iraq and Afghanistan and terror issues. And I must say, as someone who, is, who came into this job as, as, as a... As a student of the Middle East and following the, the election very carefully, the president has hewed to his, his pre-election platform vis-a-vis -vis the Middle East very, very closely. And there have been very few surprises for me in, in the conduct of his, his foreign policy. Uh, Israel, the Israelis went to the poll and they elected a government which was, though it had leftist elements in it, uh, the Labour Party was largely um, of a center-center-right Weltanschauung. And already there, you had potential for clashes over Jerusalem settlements, over Iran. Um, and I have seen over the course of the year, though there have been moments of, of friction, that um, through very close communication, we have able to, we've been able to overcome all of this friction. We've been able to work together very, very closely. You have seen not one scintilla of public difference between us over the Iran issue, which was potentially the most divisive issue between us, not one. Uh, now we are very much on the same page about moving from proximity talks with the Palestinians to direct talk with the Palestinians. Um, really, what are the two of them like together? You've seen them just last week. I've seen week. them like together. Like, what are they like right. together? Um, very warm. Um, I think they engage on an intellectual level that is um, very high. Um, even during, you know, the, remember the, the supposed snub and there was no sub? They had a very warm meeting. It didn't uh, look so supposed from the outside. It wasn't. Oh, there was no snub. There was no snub. How am I going to say this? All right. Uh, snub with the big red lines. Yeah, the, the president was supposed to be in Indonesia that night. Prime Minister came in to give a talk to APAC. It's always, traditionally, it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's an uncomfortable issue when the president and the prime minister are in the same city and they don't see each other. So at the last minute, we threw together a working minute, a meeting. We didn't go through the back way. We went through the front ways. There was no photographer because it was a working meeting. The president did not go upstairs to have dinner with his wife and children because his wife and children were not in town that day. Um, we asked to stay on to do, have a meeting in the Eisenhower room. That's why we were there late last night, because we were snuffed. Everyone, all the journalists, and I don't want to do anything about journalists, uh, missed the <laughs> forest for the trees. The forest for the trees was that we had some very, we had some very 
uh, substantive uh, uh, discussions last, that night about how to reanimate the peace process, and um, we didn't agree on everything. That was the truth. That was the true story that night. In subsequent weeks, we learned how to bridge those gaps. If you ask me what I've... You didn't ask me, but I'll ask myself. I can ask a few questions. This is great. I'm just taking a I, break. I, I, I'm, I'm scripted. He's not. Just on a, I'm on a 10-minute break. You know, I, every year, I, I got to, like, play King Kong to his biplane, you know? <laughs> <laughs> it's not fair. Um, Go ahead. Go ahead. What I learned is that the U.S.'s relation... I wrote this book about America and the Middle East, and, and, and the U.S.'s relationship was a big part of the book, and I talked about the relations on strategic cooperation, intelligence sharing, joint maneuvers... Turns out that that's a small part of the relationship. Turns out that, you know, Israel is America's 20th largest customer in the world. The United States does more business with Israel than, than Russia does, or, or, or Saudi Arabia, or, or Argentina. That uh, we, we cooperate in, in, in medical research, in the search for alternative energy, in, um, in agricultural research. Um, it's all there. It's a big chunk of my job. And so while the press is focused on whether or not the president went up to have dinner with his wife and children who weren't in Washington that night, uh, all the rest of this is going on. And the fact that we have now had you know, over a year of cooperation on Iran without any difference, the fact that we are now poised, I hope, and, um, and, I'm, and I'm optimistic about it, to move from proximity to direct talks, and once we get into direct talks, I think we can move swiftly, attests to a lot to the nature of the relationship. Let's, let's just, one more thing, if Walter gives me permission, and he's given me permission, uh, to stay on Obama mm -hmm. for a second. Answer this question, just make believe that you're not the Israeli ambassador to the United States for a minute, <laughs> uh, but that you're just a, a tenured historian. Uh, last time I was in Israel a few weeks ago, I, I talked to a senior official in the, in the defense ministry who said, uh, he said, look, we have a small problem with the Obama administration in that our worldviews are completely opposite. And what he meant by that, he says, he says we see the world divided between ex extremist Islamists, extremist Muslims, and moderate Muslims. Obama sees the world divided between Muslims and this small group of murderers who have perverted a great religion. In other words, in other words the Cairo speech, and I want you to talk about that speech specifically, the Cairo speech was a signal to the Muslim world that... From, from this particular Israeli's perspective, that we're not, we don't take this as a, as, a, as a clash of civilizations. We see this as a criminal problem, that the terrorism problem that emanates from the Muslim world is actually not a Muslim issue, it's just a criminal issue. And he said, from that, a lot of things flow. And I, I just want you to talk for a minute about what you think of as the Obama vision of the war on terror of Iraq and Afghanistan and how they play into it and how your issue plays yeah. into it. Well, I don't want to be... I understand I'm only a, a tenured professor, but even as a tenured professor, I would uh, be loath to, to like, be a spokesman for the Obama administration. I can tell you the... Um, but just analyze it. Just well, analyze. I mean, it's not my... my analyze? I see it from the Israeli perspective. Let me give you an Israeli perspective as, okay, as a tenured Israeli professor. Um, <laughs> maybe a tenured ambassador, but that would be an oxymoron. Um, <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, listen, the Cairo speech was, was an interesting speech. It was, it was, Everybody it was, knows what we're talking about. The, the speech that Obama yeah. gave to, to reset relations with the Muslim world. To the best of my knowledge, it was the only um, speech by an American leader to the, adherence, to the adherence of a faith, not to citizens of a country. 
um, which automatically put it in a different category. I, I can't think of any other president who made a, a speech to Buddhists. Um, very different. Um, many people in Israel were disturbed by the fact that he appeared to justify Israel's existence on the Holocaust, which rubs Israel's, Israeli, many Israelis the wrong way. We, we view ourselves as native to this region. We have a 3,000-year-old connection with this land, and it's not just because the Germans um, you know, decided to massacre six million of our people um, and that the Europeans dumped in italics, the, the survivors of that massacre in Israel, that is, that's actually an old Arab narrative. You'll actually find it in the conversation between Ibn Saud and, and Franklin Roosevelt in, in February 1945, exactly that narrative. It's been a problem for us. So that rubbed Israel the wrong way. And I also like the fact that the president was 15 minutes away by plane and didn't stop by. But on the other hand, uh, President Obama did not get the credit that he deserved for being the first American president in history to place the Israel, the legitimacy of the Jewish state into the heartland of the Arab and Muslim world. He said in the Cairo speech, you are going to have to recognize and accept Israel's legitimacy. No one had ever done that before. And uh, to me, that was a, a landmark event. He, he, he revisited it during his uh, General Assembly of, uh, speech in, uh, last November. Um, and it was very important. And it will become an important point in, in the peace process because legitimacy is going to be one of the sine qua nons of peace. Simply, Arab acceptance of our legitimacy. So that was, that was very important. What was, the, what was the other four questions you asked? Uh, um, why do we eat bitter herbs on this night? <laughs> Yeah, you know. <laughs> I'm done. That thunderstorm really rattled me. <laughs> I'm done. You know. um, do you want to go to some questions? Let's go to some We're questions. We're going to go to some questions. Oh, I mean, yeah. where, are the, where are the mics? There's a mic there. Mike. There's a mic oh, yeah, there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If anybody, uh, uh, raise your hand so the people in the back can see you. Yeah, 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 that's fine. You've had a chance already. Already? Yes. Um, I'm Larry Gelman. I want to thank you and, and, and welcome you back um, to Aspen. Uh, I wanted to respond to something that you said about what's going on in the American Jewish community and, and your read on those people who are drifting away and those who are actually becoming uh, more involved and, and I think you call them the core group. Um, my sense is that it's not as much about religious observance and the extent to which they are finding Judaism as much as it is uh, the extent to which they resonate to the integrity and, and accuracy, if you will, of, of, of how the situation is being portrayed here. Uh, there is, part of the story is that this is the Jewish homeland. At the end of the Seder every year, we say we should, uh, next year in Jerusalem. And yet, as you, as you look at the immigration to Israel over the last five or 10 years, it's not been from these people. It's all been from people fleeing horrible conditions, uh, largely that were perpetrated upon them because they were Jews. Uh, so there's, and, and no one is voluntarily choosing to go to Israel to speak of anymore. It's just been a place, and thank God we have it, for oppressed Jews from around the world. So the question, question is that I think that Based on my assessment, your, 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 your characterization of those who are, who are in and out based on this religious thing, would you care to reassess that? Or do you think that there's really more of a political component than a, than a Jewish component at work in terms of this disaffection that's showing up in some of these polls? Well, I, I, 
Zionism as a concept, Israel as the product of that concept, has been predicated in large measure on the Jewish state as the shelter for Jews. It is also, I mean, that, that, that's one of the major pillars of the Jewish state. Other pillars is Jews living out their destinies as Jews. If you ask me, the meaning of the Jewish state, the meaning of Zionism is Jews taking the responsibility for themselves as Jews, which is often an onerous responsibility, as we've learned, because you've got to make decisions about how to handle a flotilla. All right? If you're sitting in Iowa, you don't have to make that decision uh, as a Jew, qua Jew. Um, and in fact, and I'm saying now empirically, particularly since the 1990s, uh, immigration to the state of Israel has not only been about giving shelter. Um, many of the Zionist uh, fathers and mothers uh, did not account for the possibility that people would want to move to the Jewish state for economic benefit. And during a previous um, um, iteration of my political life, uh, when I was uh, working in the Rabin years, I was on an interministerial committee on immigration because it was the first time we were encountering this. Um, we were encountering populations around the world, six million people in Africa, an entire city in China, where people were waking up in the morning and saying they were Jewish and wanted to return under the law of return to Israel because the Israeli economy was booming. And we didn't know if we could, we could actually accommodate this mass aliyah. And this has continued. Israel is now a very attractive a place to live. And I, I think I mentioned this last year uh, when you were talking about, I mean, you mentioned something about the, the dangers of living in Israel and how one, maybe one of the failures of Zionism was the fact that, that Zionism aspired to create a place where Jews could be safe and Jews weren't safe in Israel. Remember that whole thing? And then I, I responded by saying, yes, but Israelis enjoy the second longest longevity of any people in the world. And if you want to lead a good life as a Jew, come and move to Israel. Your chances are much greater there than they are here. Um, in fact, the matter is... I know a lot of really old Jews here, though. Yeah, but if, they, if, but if they come to Israel, they will be older. They'll be even older? And they won't have to pay for their health care, because it's universal. That's true. That's true. <laughs> okay? That's true. So I don't know if that model, Larry, if that model holds. And the fact of the matter is there are many people moving to the state of Israel for a variety of reasons, for religious reasons, for Zionist reasons, also for economic reasons. Was there a question back here? Yeah. Bring that mic down to, to here. You get that here. Um, I was struck very much the other day with the ambassador from the United Arab Emirates, and when somebody asked the question about wouldn't it be ironic if Israel became the savior of the Arab countries, which didn't get answered, but raised another issue, which is this uh, situation in Iran now is both out there a bigger problem in many of the Arab countries' concerns than Israel is. Right. Isn't it significant or important that both, if there is going to be a resolve, happen almost simultaneously so they can't resolve the Iran problem and then go back on to Israel? Okay. As it's a linkage question. Let me, ask, let, me, let me preface the linkage question by saying um, there's a distinction to, between the difference between the, the threat posed, the nature and magnitude of the threat posed by Iran to Israel and the nature and magnitude of the threat posed by Iran to the Arab states. Iran poses a potentially existential threat to Arab regimes. Iran poses a monumental threat to the existence of the state of Israel. There's a difference in that. 
Um, having said that, we do not accept linkage. The linkage that either you need to resolve the Arab-Israeli conflict in order to address the th challenge and threat of Iranian nuclearization, because we could resolve the Arab-Israeli conflict, God willing, tomorrow, and it's not going to keep the Brazilians from trying to strike compromise deal in, deals with the Iranians, or for that matter, the Turks. Sec conversely, and I think there's probably a better case can be made from that, it is, will be easier to solve the Arab-Israeli conflict if Iran is neutralized as, as a nuclear threat. Because as long as the Iranian threat persists, they will persist in supporting Hezbollah and Hamas and every other terrorist organization that is doing its utmost to pervert and prevent th uh, 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 efforts of peace. Having said that, we believe, strongly believe, that we should and must and can strive for peace between Israel and the Palestinians and other Arab neighbors, irrespective of the Iranian threat, but at the same time simultaneously address that threat. Uh, there's someone down here. I think we have time for one or two more. Hi, my name is Susan Silver, and as a Jew and a supporter of Israel, I want to say you did us proud, and thank you. Um, you my Jeff. question is... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Jeffrey, Anna. Um, my question is this. I'm not I'm, even Jewish, but... I know you aren't, <laughs> but you are funny. Tibetan. Um, as a member of the media, my frustration is that we're losing, we, Israel is losing the PR war. When you stated the reality of the Obama-Netanyahu meeting and what really went on, why wasn't that in the press? Why wasn't the Israeli press corps putting that out there so we know the facts so that the perception then didn't, you know, be false? Thank you. I don't, I don't want to shock you. Okay, I want you to sit down. Okay. Not everything in the press is true. And not only everything in the press, are, 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 not only is the press willing to listen. What I told you today about the snub, I must have said dozens of times on TV. Ask most people in this room if they think the prime minister was snubbed that night. They'll say he was snubbed that night. And there's certain things you learn. You learn that, um, that what you read in the press is often a very pale simulacrum. Of, of political reality and the way real decisions are made or what really transpires in political meetings. Um, and uh, you just, you learn to live with it. You learn to live with it. And you also see the way that things you say uh, can be distorted and, and turned around uh, to serve various political agendas. It is a, it is a reality, you know, like um, <laughs> toe fungus. It, <laughs> it is a... Unpleasant, I know I, and it, some people may be partial to tell fungus here. Um, it is an unpleasant reality of political life. You just deal with it. That's, now, that's going to uh, be the headline. Oren, journalism is, like toe fungus, yeah. right? Uh, <laughs> Trust me, that'll be the headline. Over. Right. <laughs> yeah, you can see better than I can. So, yeah, we'll do one, one more over here and one more over here. Okay. Yes. Since it's been so difficult to get some agreement about boundaries and what's happening with Jerusalem and the rest of the world with all of the incredible wealth that they have in the Muslim world and Europe and Asia so supports the Palestinians, and there's only three million of them, wouldn't the best, quickest solution be to come in and invest heavily in those three million people and infrastructure in the Palestinian areas and bring their level of, of living, their, 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 their economic viability to the level of Israel, and that that would be way cheaper than fighting wars? Okay, excellent question. 
Let me first say this. You know, I often have, I often have, give a background briefing to journalists. They'll come into my office, and, and their opening line is, how does it feel to know the whole world hates you? And my, my response is, well, how do you define the whole world? To the best of my knowledge, about 900 million Indians really like us. About 1.3 billion Chinese really like us. Our relations with Eastern Europe are, are superb. Our relations with Russia, you'd be surprised, are very, are very good. Our relations with most of Western Europe are, ex are excellent. Um, the polls showing American support, not American Jewish support, American support for Israel are unsurpassed. So how do you define the whole world hating you? Uh, so let me, let me say this, see it in a certain perspective. The whole world is not necessarily the op-ed of your page, of your, you know, your morning newspaper. That's not the whole world. Uh, and Israel is far, far from alone and far, far from isolated. Having said that now, about three million Palestinians, we are working assiduously with the United States, with the Palestinian Authority, to improve the Palestinian economy, to build what we call the bottom-up peace process by removing hundreds of roadblocks and checkpoints, by removing pa Israeli forces from Palestinian areas, by helping to create law and order on the Palestinian streets that didn't exist before. As part of our discussions with the Obama administration earlier this week, we discussed an entire list of gestures and projects we are going to undertake to further facilitate and accelerate this process. But it's not enough. Bottom-up is not enough. There has to be a top-down horizon for the Palestinians. They have to know at the end of the day that their political destiny will arrive at statehood and independence. And I am fortunate and privileged to represent a government and a people that fully supports this. Now, we have different estimates about the ability to reach this within a certain number of years and the difficulties we are going to encounter. There are 30 ministers in my government, and they tend to have different opinions. Uh, there are 7.5 million Israelis, and they have twice as many opinions. <laughs> but we're committed to this, and we know that the bottom-up is not enough. We have to have a, a top-down political advisement, and the goal is two states for two people living side by side in peace, security, and mutual legitimacy. I, I thought I saw someone, was there someone here? Was there, I guess it was back there, yeah. I guess it was back there. This, by the way, is the last question of the Aspen Ideas Festival. Not that there's any pressure on <laughs> it's you. It's gotta be good. Is this, is this working? Right. Okay. Um, there was an article after the flotilla incident in Time Magazine by, by a, a Jewish writer. Um, that was critical of Israel, saying that me. Israel in recent... <laughs> never heard of that before, right? <laughs> in recent years, they said that Israel has been... In, in incidents like this, they've had a tendency to react with overwhelming force when maybe restraint might be called for. So, two questions. One, do you think that criticism is legitimate? And two... Um, do you think that Israel maybe reacts like that because they think overwhelming force will be a deterrent when, in fact, sometimes it's just a provocation? Okay. Between the years September 2000, 2000 and March 2002, Israel was subjected to an unbroken strand 
of terrorist suicide bombers. We lost 1,000 Israelis to suicide bombers, including close friends, a family member. Israel held fire throughout that entire period. If there was one suicide bomber, one bus blew up in downtown Aspen, I wonder how long the United States would restrain itself. Between August 2005, when we withdrew from Gaza, and December of 2008, Israel was hit by close to 10,000 rockets, missiles, and, and mortar shells from Gaza. We held our fire. Not only we held our fire, our prime minister begged, literally begged, Hamas to extend a ceasefire. Our foreign minister went to Cairo to beg Hamas to accept a ceasefire. If one rocket had fallen in downtown Washington, I wonder how long the United States would have restrained itself. Does Israel exercise restraint? Israel landed several young commandos on a boat armed with paintball guns. Paintball guns. In an attempt to, provide, to prevent, the, prevent the sea lanes being open to the supply of thousands of rockets. Keep in mind, Hezbollah in, in Lebanon, under UN auspices, went from an arsenal of 12,000 rockets to close to 50,000 rockets in four years. Under the UN. They landed with paintball balls and paintball guns, and they were beset upon with knives, iron bars, and we believe several weapons because some of our soldiers sustained gunshot wounds. And they had to use their sidearms to defend themselves. Restraint? Show me a country in the world, show me a country in history that remotely comes close, approximates Israel's restraint. Remotely. I think at times that our restraint borders on the pathological. And, and sometimes I want to tear out remains of my hair thinking, why are we restraining ourselves? Why aren't we, you know, one of the goals of Zionism was to be a normal country. Why aren't we a normal country like the United States? We're not. We're not a, we're not a normal country. We're an abnormal country. We are a Jewish country. And yes, there is, there is not a double standard in the world. There's a triple standard in the world. There's the standard for dictatorships. There's a standard for democracies. There's a standard for Israel. And that writer in the Time magazine was holding us to the standard of Israel, which no other democracy in the world would remotely, remotely accommodate. We are an abnormal state. We're a Jewish state. And yes, though I tear my hair out of it, I am inestimably proud, profoundly proud of the fact that we are a Jewish state. And I wouldn't have us be any other way. Ambassador thank Oren, thank you very much. Um, thank you.